It's a great pleasure to introduce Hugh White. Um, he has actually been around Oxford uh, rather a lot already this term. I, when I asked him to speak, or he volunteered to speak to this group, I said, great, you could do two or three other things at the same time. What I didn't imagine was we were going to drag Hugh up to London, uh, from London to Oxford as often uh, during his month over in the UK, um, but it's great that he has managed to get here um, for the third time. He goes back to Australia this weekend. He is Professor of Strategic Studies at the ANU and a visiting fellow at the Lowy Institute. Um, and he has been in government himself. He's been an advisor to Kim Beasley when he was Defence Minister and Bob Hawke when he was Prime Minister. Um, and he's been a Deputy Secretary for Strategy and Intelligence in the Department of Defence uh, before going on to being the first director of ASPI, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, he was the principal author of the Australian 2000 Defence White Paper. Um, I think it would be fair to say, Hugh, you're not quite on the same page as the most recent White Paper. That's true. Um, and uh, he has just published um, The China Choice, Why America Should Share Power. So I'm ta taking that moment to plug this. Um, uh, and I'm sure it's a snip. <laughs> Excellent value. Excellent value. His title today um, is The End of the Anglo-Saxon Era, Australia's Defence in the Asian Century. That's it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here for the. And there's no trip. There's no, no uh, problem at all coming back to Oxford uh, three times in a month. Uh, uh, I, uh, it's always nice to come back to this town. I have very happy memories of it. And thanks all for coming. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I should also thank King's College London, who have been kind enough to shout me uh, a month in the UK, which is by far and away the longest time I've spent in the UK since I was a student here myself a long time ago, and I must say I've enjoyed it enormously. What I want to talk about today is what's happening in Asia strategically and what that means for Australian defence policy. And by defence policy I'm going to mean something fairly specific and austere, that is the decisions that governments make and in a sense through governments that communities make, societies make, about the kinds of capabilities, uh, military capabilities they build, the kinds of military operations they prepare to undertake, and the kind of money they spend on defence. And I want to relate the choices that Australia now faces on those sets of questions to some judgments about the trajectory of strategic affairs in the Asia-Pacific at the moment. But first, by way of kind of scene setting, I want to just offer a slightly generic set of comments about what seem to me to be some characteristic problems uh, amongst Western societies in general as they approach these questions of defence policy, the questions I just sketched. Because it does seem to me that many of, uh, many of our countries are facing in different ways a fairly similar set of questions um, about the way they think about the future of their armed forces and the, and the shape of their defence budgets and so on. Um, and I think it provides a helpful frame for the specific points I want to make Australia about Australia's situations. The core question that has to be asked, answered before you can get down to the nitty gritty of deciding what kind of armed forces you want, what kind of military operations you want to undertake, what sort of money you want to spend, is the most obvious one and still the hardest to answer. That is, what is armed force for? What are the circumstances under which societies like ours actually want to use lethal force uh, or capabilities capable of delivering lethal force to achieve policy ends? 
I think it would be fair to say that um, since the end of the Cold War, and perhaps for a long time before that, the ways of answering that question can be divided into two seemingly artificial but I think actually quite robust categories. The first is that they're for big wars, old wars, state-on-state wars. Um, uh, the classic conception of war that uh, we, we all, so to speak, came out of the 20th century with. Um, such wars, particularly in the last century or even century and a half, have not characteristically been wars of choice. Of course, there's always choices that governments make about whether they go into wars, but there's a very such wars are undertaken with a sense that there is a very fundamental national interest at stake. Um, often questions of national survival and so on, and that within a pretty broad definition, there is these are not wars of choice; they're wars of compulsion. And World War One and World War Two are, in their different ways, uh, classic examples. And in discussions such of, su of such wars, at, at least beforehand and afterwards, though not always during them, uh, discussion issues of interests uh, uh, tend to come to the fore. And the second category, of course, are what we might call the new wars, though they're not really new at all. They're the small wars, they're the wars in which the adversaries are not necessarily state actors, and often aren't state actors. If they are state actors, they're relatively small and weak states, not big, strong ones. They tend to be wars of choice in a much stronger sense. That is, there are there may well be interests involved, but more often they're pursuing uh, objectives that are defined in terms of values, and they often uh, uh, they often happen further from home, so to speak. Now, uh, after the Cold War, obviously, um, there was a very strong sense that big wars, old wars, were a thing of the past. There was a lot of evidence that new wars and small wars were not just a theoretical possibility, but something that was going to keep us very busy. We had a lot for peculiar reasons. Uh, we had a lot of different ex exposures to various kinds of small wars. Um, and it seemed very natural to conclude that the principal purpose which countries like ours developed armed forces in the post-Cold War era was to fight small wars, new wars, not big old wars. It's worth bearing in mind that if you look back at what actually happened to force development in the 1990s and the 2000s, it didn't actually follow that. Very few countries, I think New Zealand perhaps the most striking exception, really reconceived their armed forces around the idea that in future they're going to be used for small wars rather than big wars. Although sometimes this was, not often, this was, so to speak, presented or managed, um, you might even say fudged, by the set of ideas that became encapsulated by Chuck Krulak as the three block war. That is the idea that actually there's not that much difference between big wars and small wars because you end up doing the same thing at the same time. I've got to say, I, I, can't, I can't think offhand of a sillier proposition than the three block war. It might well be true that when you're doing a stabilisation operation, you might be at the same time as the three block war suggested doing something like having a more intense firefight at the other end of the street <coughs> or in the next block. But the idea that in a high intensity continental scale conflict, you're also doing stabilisation operations? No, that's a fantasy. That, that, that shows that people are forgetting remarkably quickly what a big war looks like, what a very serious thing it is. They're very different. Big wars, and, big wars and small wars, old wars and new wars are very different kinds of, of human activities, making very different demands on our countries and on our armed forces and with hugely different implications for the kinds of forces we build. Now, uh, with, as I say, at the end of the Cold War, 
even up until quite recently, it seemed very natural for people to argue that the small wars were the wars of the future and the old wars were the, were the wars of the past, the big wars were the wars of the past. I think that is now not so clear for two quite different reasons. The first is our confidence that armed force could effectively be used in small war type operations to achieve the kind of broad stabilisation objectives that such wars character characteristically have has been at least damaged by some of our experience in the last decade or so. Um, and uh, I think the question about whether armed force actually works as a way of achieving the kinds of stabilisation objectives which has often been used in some, cir some circumstances clearly does work. I, I think historians will judge Libya fairly kindly, for example. Um, Kosovo is campaign possibly as well. In other circumstances, they clearly don't. I think it's an interesting factor that, the, that it works best when it's small. So small, small wars work better than big, small wars. And some of the small wars we've fought in the last decade have been quite big. Not by big war standards, but by the standards of what people had in mind when they talked about small wars. Um, you know, Afghanistan started as a small war and, well, look where we are. So I think there is a question, and, you know, it's sort of trite to say it, but I think Afghanistan is going to, and Iraq in its way, are going to stand as very significant cautions to people contemplating building armed forces for large-scale small wars. And the trouble with building armed forces for small-scale small, small, small wars is because forces end up being very small. Um, so the first reason why I think the focus on small wars is not as clear as it was is that small wars maybe don't work as, as, much, as, we, as much as we thought. The second reason is that the prospect of major conflict, of old-fashioned wars, now seems less remote than it did for most of the 90s and, and, and the last decade. Um, and that's because we're perhaps less confident today than, than we were for the first couple of post-Cold War decades about the durability of the very stable set of relations between the world's stronger states that emerged from uh, the end of the Cold War. And of course it sort of goes without saying, but the thing that drives big wars are bad relations between big states. You don't get a big war unless you have very big states at war, at, at war with one another. And it's, it's bad relations between very big states which presents the dangers of big wars. And our confidence that we weren't going to have big wars was very strongly embedded in a set of judgments about the kind of relationships the world's stronger states were going to have. And I think the lower level of confidence today about uh, the kind of wars we're preparing to fight in the future reflect the lower level of confidence in the long-term trajectory of relations between the world's strongest states. Um, and it'd be worth saying that the future of everyone's defence policy depends on how we clarify two sets of resulting questions, if that set of observations are, are right. The first is we do have to ask, what small wars are we really going to fight in the future? It's going to be, I think, much more limited than, for example, Tony Blair's force for good concept back in the late 90s suggested. And there's questions about not just does armed force work to achieve the objectives we're trying to set ourselves in places like, for example, Afghanistan, but do our interests in those situations, let's leave the values to one side, do our interests in those situations warrant the scale of investment required, investment in lives as well as in money? And the second set of questions is how do we balance the probability of major war that have collapsed in the order amongst the world's strongest states? 
against the cost of preparing to fight such wars? And does is the probability of, of, of old-fashioned conflicts of that kind high enough to justify us in spending what would presumably be the immense amounts of money building very different kinds of defence forces to fight those kinds of wars again? Now, I think both those challenges... I say this as a person from the other side of the world. It seems to me when I look at UK defence policy, I think both of those challenges are very live in the questions that confront British strategic policy makers today. When I think about the future of the, of the, of, of the UK armed forces, uh, the question uh, about whether or not um, the UK is going to fight more Afghanistans seems a very pertinent one. But it also seems to me the question as to whether the United Kingdom or what place in UK defence policy should be taken by uh, the possibility that the state, the order between the strongest states in Europe breaks down, uh, how that should be addressed and approached seems to me to be a really critical question. I don't know much about Europe, but it seems to me that the likelihood of the relationships between the states of Western Europe, the strong states in Western Europe, breaking down is vanishingly low. I personally, if I was a defence policy maker, I'd dismiss it. It's not worth worrying about. Uh, I think myself that the risks of Russia at some stage choosing to contest the post-Cold War order on its western borders is not nearly as low. I don't think it's very high, but it's not nearly as low as the possibility of going back to the bad old days of, of Western Europe um, in the first half of the 20th century. And it does seem to me to be an interesting question for British defence policy, and for that matter for other European defence policy, what place in Britain's defence policy is taken by uh, the question, what do we need to do, do we want to be in a position to do anything in the event that Russia contests uh, uh, the present order uh, on, its, on its borders? That does seem to me to be a very difficult question. But let me focus on what it means for Australia. Because both of these questions, about small wars and big wars, hit home for Australia in a particularly acute way. The question about small wars hits home for Australia because although I've said that small wars tend characteristically more wars of choice, one of the reasons for that, as I touched on, is that small wars characteristically for Western countries have been fought at a distance. Um, they uh, in involve weak or failing or dysfunctional um, or rogue states um, and although Libya is quite close, obviously, at least some members of the EU, um, uh, Australia is the only OECD country other than the United States that has what you might call weak and failing states as its closest neighbours. And we do have weak and failing states as our close neighbours. They're quite... They're, they're, for weak and failing states, they're relatively benign, but they do cause us a great deal of trouble and heartache and when Australians think about stabilisation operations we don't think first and foremost of going to Afghanistan or to Africa uh, we think of going to East Timor or the Solomon Islands or Papua New Guinea um, and so for us the small wars are less wars of choice if something badly goes wrong in Papua New Guinea then it's, it's, it's not clear how much choice Australia has as to whether it's going to intervene when something went wrong in East Timor most people in Australia felt this was not a war of choice for us. Well, fortunately, it didn't turn into a war. But um, there was a certain compulsion for, for us about, about this. Um, now, the good news about, about that aspect of it is that if we decide, to the extent that we decide that small wars are central to us, particularly in our immediate neighbourhood, I don't find it very hard to say what we need to do, at least so far as armed forces are concerned. There's very big questions about what you do in broader national policy. 
because the extent to which countries like Australia can effectively mobilise uh, uh, efforts, aid, trade, the whole gamut, to really make a difference to weak and failing states does seem to me to be, after a couple of decades of trying, still very unclear. I don't think we're very good at this. Uh, one thing we know is that it's not a story for armed forces alone. One thing we know is it needs to be all sorts of other elements. We haven't yet worked out a good formula for how you relate the other elements, and we haven't worked out a very good formula for what exactly the armed forces are meant to do and how they relate to policing and so on. But I think, nonetheless, I reckon I can tell you what needs to happen to the ADF to the extent that we prioritise fighting those small wars in our immediate neighbourhood as a core focus for our defence policy. And that is we end up with a substantially bigger and lighter army, needed more people in it, and more of the money spent on those people and less of the money spent on firepower protection and mobility, um, uh, the sort of things that you'd spend much more money on if you were preparing to fight a major continental war. You'd put much more effort into what you might broadly call training and policing type functions. You'd put a large amount of effort into language training in local languages rather than in Pushtun or Arabic or some of the other languages we've been trying to pick up recently. And you'd spend money, but not very much money, on the air and naval capabilities required to deploy and sustain those forces around the archipelagos in Australia's region, essentially in uncontested air and sea space. That is, you don't need to spend money trying to deploy forces to Papua New Guinea or, or uh, the Solomon Islands or East Timor against a capable naval adversary. You just need to build the, build the forces that can get them there um, uh, unopposed. And in some ways, if you look at the ADF's capability development today, there's some elements of that can be seen. The question about what you do in relation to big wars is much bigger and much harder. Uh, and that's what I want to touch on now. Because to the extent that the question for Australia is to how much effort we put into developing capabilities for big wars obviously depends very heavily on our judgments about the future of the Asian order and in particular the future of the relationship between Asia's strongest states. It's a very big subject, I'm just going to touch on it very briefly. But suffice to say that the most important characteristic of Asia is that for the last 40 years we've enjoyed the most stable era in, in Asia's history and that that has been based on a remarkably stable period of relations between Asia's stronger states and the foundation of that stability has been a really remarkable thing. That is an era in which American primacy in Asia has not been contested by any of the other major powers in Asia, in particular by China and Japan, the two great powers that have contested American primacy in Asia before and which caused so much of the strategic drama in the Western Pacific successively in the 20th century, in 1972, in different ways, both China and Japan, Japan having initially done it from 1945, decided to accept American primacy as a foundation for the Asian order, and that has produced the stability which has made Asia the story it is today. Uh, for Australia, this has been returned to the 19th century. The 19th century was a very stable and peaceful era for Australia and actually in its way quite a stable and peaceful era for Asia because UK British maritime primacy in the Western Pacific was essentially uncontested until the intrusion of some other European powers, the rise of Japan of course and the um, intrusion of the United States. But, further, but that only happened right at the end of the century. Uh, Australia's sort of characteristic first century experience, its first century after settlement in the 19th century, was of uncontested Anglo-Saxon primacy in the Western Pacific and for a little Anglo-Saxon outpost, that was just perfect for us. And the restoration of uncontested Anglo-Saxon primacy in the Western Pacific after 1972 has been just perfect for us. Um, 
Now, to cut a long story short, that era is passing. The slightly provocative title of my talk, Into the Anglo-Saxon Era, um, I, and I'm going to cover a lot of ground very quickly here, I think China's rise constitutes a fundamental shift in the uh, distribution of economic weight and strategic power in Asia. As that occurs, I think China is now again contesting US primacy as the foundation of the Asian order. I think that challenge is a very serious one. Uh, I think it's a, a challenge which the United States is unlikely to be able to resist. I'll talk later about how it might respond to it. But if that is true, then the order which we've enjoyed in Asia for the last 40 years and which very strongly shapes our thinking about the way Asia works and which has absolutely <coughs> shaped Australian defence policy today won't last. There will be a new order and what that order will look like will depend primarily on the choices made by Asia's stronger states and I would say particularly, although Japan has a big part of this, particularly uh, uh, the choices of the US and China. And I think the best way to capture what those choices are is to focus on a US aspect, although you could tell the same story in relation to China if you wanted to. The US has really only three choices. It can withdraw from Asia, that is it can concede China's challenge, pull back completely. Not, I think, very likely, but particularly over the longer term, one should never rule it out. Uh, we absolutely cannot take for granted the United States continues to play a primary or substantial role in the strategic affairs of the Western Pacific in the longer term. Second possibility is that America doesn't concede completely to China's challenge, but concedes a little bit and aims to establish a kind of a sharing arrangement with China, whereby America exercises less power, China exercises more power, but America can still continues to exercise a great deal of power, and, and the amount of power that China exercises is very strongly limited by the fact that America is still there. Uh, this is, I think, an extremely difficult outcome to achieve. Uh, I've written elsewhere, that's what the book's really about, as to why I think it's by far and away the best outcome for Asia, and the best outcome for America, and by a long way the best outcome for Australia. Uh, but it's extremely hard to achieve. And the only reason to think that there might be a chance of achieving it is that the alternative looks so lousy. Because the third option, the one I think is by far and away the most likely outcome, is that the US doesn't concede to China at all, that it resists uh, China's challenge to its primacy, seeks to preserve strategic primacy as the, as the organising principle of the Asian order and the foundation of its role in Asia. Um, and uh, I think if that occurs, um, the probability of um, uh, escalating strategic rivalry between the US and China is very high because I think the chances of China accepting uh, America's, so to speak, conceding America's contest and saying, OK, if you're not going to peacefully allow us to um, uh, to take a, get a bigger role in Asia, we'll forget about the whole idea and get back into our box, I think the chances of that happening are very low. I think China will push back against America's... Um, uh, uh, resistance to the Chinese challenge and strategic rivalry would escalate. This is not a prediction, this is a description of what's going on at the moment. I think the Obama speech, Barack Obama's speech about China in Canberra uh, a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, November last year, was a very clear statement of, um, of America's determination to preserve primacy as a foundation for the Asian order, its primacy. And I think the Chinese, a lot of Chinese conduct since then has been a clear indication of its determination to push back to that. So I think escalating strategic rivalry between the US and China is 
a clear current phenomenon, and I think the risk of it continuing and escalating further is quite high. And that therefore poses very big questions to everyone in Asia, including to Australia, about what it means for the future of, um, uh, of, of the stable Asian order and therefore the risks that Australia might find itself drawn into um, uh, a, make, a, a big wall. Because it's worth bearing in mind the defence policy that Australia has today, based on the self-reliant defence of the continent, uh, absolutely derives from that era of uncontested primacy that was initiated in 1972. That set of ideas started coming into Australian defence policy at the end of our Vietnam commitment, which was in 1972. It, it was the subject of vigorous debate in, in Canberra and around Australia for the following few years. In 1976, the, the then Fraser government introduced a defence white paper which, which articulated the self-reliant defence of the continent as the foundation of the Australian, Australian defence policy. That remains the case today. And the, the principal judgment that underpinned that reformulation of Australian defence policy was a judgment spelled out quite explicitly in the, in the 76 white paper, and that is, and if there's not a quote, it's a very close paraphrase, no more than the former great powers of Europe... I don't know whether I meant, what, what the draft is meant by former. That seemed a little bit cheeky to me. But no more than the former great powers of Europe, comma, Will, will, will Australia's um, strategic risks over coming decades be, be directly determined by the actions of the, of the Asian great powers? 76 Australia excluded Asia's great powers from thinking about its strategic uh, situation. And that's because of the impact of that era of uncontested primacy that emerged in 1972. We could afford to do that and it's worked for us for the last 40 years. That 40 years has come to an end. One other dynamic that I just need to touch on, and that is that um, although China's rise is, in a sense, the biggest story in Asia, it's not the only story in Asia. India's rise is another very interesting story in Asia. I won't go there um, for sake of brevity. But in considering Australian defence policy, another part of the story is very important, and that is Indonesia. One of the things that's, that makes Australia rather, gives Australia's strategic situation a rather distinctive flavour is that all of our neighbours are much smaller than weaker and weaker than we are. We're a big country geographically and relatively large economically, surrounded by states which, with one exception, are much smaller and weaker than we are. And one exception, of course, is Indonesia, which is much bigger than us demographically, but has always been and remains in our minds a poor, weak state. Well, it's not anymore. It's actually richer than Australia is. And on present trends, and that means this is not a promise, but serious economists will tell you that Indonesia has a chance of being, uh, according to one estimate, the fourth largest economy in the world in 2040. The fourth largest in the world, based on phenomenal demographics. It's got the fourth biggest population, actually. That's simple as that. Um, uh, now, it might not make that, but it's got a good chance of being the sixth or seventh or eighth. It's got a very good chance of having an economy twice or three times, or on some estimates, four times the size of Australia's within the time frames that are relevant to the decisions that Australian governments must now make about Australia's future defence capabilities. That doesn't mean Indonesia's going to be a threat. It might mean it's going to be a big asset 
going to be very different though. We're going to we're going to have a great power next door for the first time in our history. Okay. So what does this mean about Australia's choices? Australia faces a very profound set of choices, I would argue, about the way in which our defence policy and for that matter our broader strategic and foreign policy respond to the shift in the Asian order which I've sketched with almost impertinent brevity. The first is, do we urge the United States to go for the second of the two options I mentioned, that is sharing power with China? For all the dangers and unease and complications and uncertainties that that entails, or do we do what Australia has traditionally done, and that is urge the United States and before that the United Kingdom to preserve primacy? For you could say 234 years since our Philip went ashore in 1788, the necessary and sufficient condition for Australian security in our view, in Australia's view, has been the maintenance of Anglo-Saxon maritime primacy in the Western Pacific. And I hesitate to say this in front of such a distinguished historian of the First World War, but at least from my reading of it, the reason Australia was at Gallipoli and there on the Western Front was very, very clearly framed by the fact that if Britain had been defeated in Europe, its capacity to to preserve its dominant position in the Western Pacific, already then under great pressure, of course, would have been devastated and Australia would have been left vulnerable to Japan. And that argument is there all through the, all through the Australian records. So this is a very, a very old idea for Australia, that if in doubt, Australia supports the maintenance of Anglo-Saxon primacy in the Western Pacific. But we've never faced in the Western Pacific a non-Anglo-Saxon power as powerful as China. Um, Japan, Imperial Japan at its height probably didn't have an economy bigger than about a fifth or a sixth the size of America. It might have been a good deal less than that. Um, even the Soviet Union was never much more than a half or on very generous interpretation two-thirds, whereas China's economy will most probably overtake the United States sometime in the next couple of years and could be double the size of America's on plausible economic estimates within the time frames that are relevant to the sorts of choices we're making. So we do have to ask whether it's better for us if the United States does what it's doing at the moment and contests China's challenge, absolutely, or whether it tries to negotiate with China. It's a very big, it's a very big call for Australia. I think we should urge America to share power. I think I'm the only person in Australia who thinks that. Um, and I'm not even in Australia at the moment, so nobody in Australia thinks that at the moment. When I get home, the number will go up again by one. Um, but what I want to talk about now is, to, is, is the second question. That is, okay, irrespective of what Australia urges America to do, um, what, how does Australia respond? How, how should Australia's defence thinking um, respond to what we to, 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 to the phenomenon I've talked about? And my argument there is pretty plain that although I think we should strongly argue for a power sharing arrangement, what I call a concert of Asia. I, I don't predict it will occur. I predict we'll see escalating strategic, strategic rivalry, and the key question for Australia then is what should we do in the face of that? Um, I think we've, roughly speaking, got four options. If strategic rivalry between the US and China escalates, Australia has four choices. It could continue to support the United States as the United States gets drawn more and more deeply into a more and more intensely con contested relationship with China. Um, and to many people, and many people in Australia, that looks like continuity. We've always supported the United States in the past, we'll support them in the future. But it's not continuity, it's very different. Because China's a very different kind of adversary. It's a very different kind of adversary from the ones we've, 
um, faced in the last 40 years. In fact, in the last 40 years in Asia, the United States hasn't faced an adversary. So it'd be a very different kind of relationship, a very different kind of alliance with the United States, one that was, again, strongly oriented around an Asian major power adversary. And this time, the major power adversary will be much, much stronger and also much more important to Australia. This country is, after all, our major trading partner. Um, and uh, I think what we'd see is an alliance that became much, much more demanding in Australia and that would increasingly drive Australia to make very significant choices about the extent to which it would prepare to support the United States on these sorts of things and the decision announced in November last year to base um, Marines at Darwin is, I think, the very clearly the first down payment of that process. We should expect more of those sorts of demands. So an alliance with the United States in escalating strategic rivalry with China would be a very different alliance from the one we've known and would cost Australia a great deal and would also, of course, um, uh, have very big effects on our relationship with China itself. The second option for Australia is to forego the alliance and to adopt, one might say, kind of armed neutrality. Um, in some ways, you look at Australia, big continent, fairly isolated, big trading country. Um, armed neutrality might actually be a, you know, relatively plausible for Australia. Um, in some ways, you might say we have some of the essential requirements, the geographical requirements for it. Um, well, for reasons I'll touch on in a minute, the, the neutrality bit can look quite attractive. The armed bit looks very hard. That is, by, by armed neutrality, you mean the kind of Swiss or Swedish model that is, you prepare yourself to be able to defend your own... You don't ally with anybody else, but you prepare yourself to be able to defend your own country, absolutely. If you can make that work, that could be an attractive model. And it has a kind of resonance for Australia, which um, I think is... Well, it's there on the, on, the, on the radar. The third possibility is to seek allies in Asia, just not the United States. And I think, although there's a, there's a longer argument to be made here, I think this is where Indonesia comes back into the picture. Uh, Indonesia is potentially, in an era in which Australia no longer feels aligned with the United States, uh, Indonesia is potentially the most important strategic partner for Australia because our geographical proximity gives us, as well as an inherently competitive relationship, or a relationship we will always have elements of un unease about them, it also gives us an unusually close alignment of strategic interests in relation to powers further away. Um, and I think that there, there is a prospect for Australia to build a strong strategic alliance with Indonesia uh, which will become stronger and stronger the more threatening the rest of the region seemed, but to realise it would require Australia to reconceive its relationship with Indonesia very fundamentally. Um, and the last option is what I somewhat unkindly call uh, the New Zealand option. And that is the, the option of um, saying, OK, well, we're not going to worry about this. Um, we'll be a good international citizen, we'll get a seat on the Security Council, for example, um, that will make us a global power in our own right, along with Luxembourg and... Um, <laughs> no, I love the Security Council, really. Um, uh, th th this is a perfectly credible possibility for Australia. Australians very strongly think of themselves as a middle power. It's very, you know, very much part of our national identity. Um, but we don't really have much experience of acting as a middle power that is really functioning independently of a great power on the world stage. Because we've always had a great and powerful friend, an Anglo-Saxon uh, power, to help frame the debate around us in our favour. Um, and it might well be that being a middle power is not something that Australia is going to manage in the Asian century. We'll find ourselves, without wanting to, going the New Zealand route. Now, I actually... I am one of the few people in the Australian defence community 
who thinks New Zealand's defence policy is quite good for New Zealand. Um, uh, so I don't, when I call it the New Zealand option, I don't mean that necessarily as a term of abuse, it's, it, uh, but I, I do make the point it would be very different for Australia to decide that it was not going to try and um, uh, shape the world around it and particularly defend its own security uh, with its own armed forces. And if you look at that list, being a US ally in a more congested Asia, being armed and neutral, being a regional ally, any of those first three require us to build what you might broadly call the armed force of middle power. Um, the beauty of the New Zealand option is that's the only one that doesn't require us to do that. Um, uh, to be a substantial ally to the United States, to stand by ourselves or to be a significant ally to, uh, to a regional partner like Indonesia would require us to have um, uh, substantial armed forces. And the big question for Australia is, well, are we up for that? What would it cost and how would we do it? Well, let me just offer you very quickly a sketch for how I think those questions could be answered. Again, I'm going to cover, I'm going to be impertinently brief here, but I think in military terms, a middle power has to be able to both defend its own territory, including against a major power, at least up to a point, raise the costs and risks to a major power to the point where it significantly affects the major power's judgment about attacking it. And it also needs to be able to make a significant contribution to regional coalitions. I think the count as a middle peg of able to do both of those things. Now, let me look at those separately. What's required for Australia to be able to defend its own territory independently against a major Asian power? I think this becomes a kind of a test case for Australia's defence policy in the Asian century if we're going to be a middle power or not. Most Australians, when they look at our circumstances, see the continent's very big, we're very few, we can't defend ourselves, we have to rely on our allies. But actually, the geography works to our advantage in many ways. Um, we're remote, it's a big continent, it does actually make it quite a difficult place to take on, and we have long air and sea approaches. Um, now, it does seem to me that using those long air and sea approaches, taking advantage of the scale of our geography, taking advantage of the way that modern surveillance technologies turns all of that space from being an operational liability to being an operational asset, it gives you a huge amount of strategic depth if you render it transparent. Australia is very well placed, no, relatively well placed, to build, to, to, to build a posture to deny our air and sea approaches to potential adversaries. Um, and so you can frame that broader question I asked a minute ago in more specific terms. What will be required for Australia to build armed forces that would be able to deny area maritime approaches um, to a major power adversary? Or rather, to be a bit more precise, to deny area maritime approaches to the forces that a major power adversary could deploy and sustain in our approaches, um, and what that means depends a lot on how close the major power is and what sort of basing they have available and to the point, not so that you defeat them, but to the point where you raise the costs and risks to a major power adversary of trying to penetrate our aero maritime approach to the point that it's not worth their while. You don't have to win this war. You just have to raise the costs and risks to the point where, it's, where, where from the adversary's point of view, it's no longer worth pursuing. That's how, that's how middle powers succeed against great powers um, strategically. They don't win. They just prevent the other guy from achieving their objectives. Um, now that's, that's a fairly traditional idea for Australia. The idea of a, of a strategy of essentially maritime denial as the foundation of Australian defence policy goes back a long way. The second part of it though is much more contentious. 
And that is, how do we think about the kind of contribution we should make to coalition operations in, in Asia? Traditionally, Australia's approach to coalition operations has been very straightforward. We deploy land forces um, uh, to join coalition operations, coalition land forces run by other people. Um, and that's the whole sort of story of Australian military history. But of course, traditionally, our great and powerful friends have been dominant military powers in the Western Pacific. So traditionally, we've been able to use the sea to deploy our forces overseas to sustain them, to recover them, and so on. We have had sea control. We, not Australia, we, our allies, have had sea control. Um, that seems to me to be one of the things that's shifting very fast. Uh, one of the reasons why I think China's challenge to American primacy in Asia is so significant is that I think notwithstanding this overall superiority of the American armed forces, China has, a, has I think, already acquired a capacity to uh, raise the cost and risk to the United States of projecting power by sea uh, uh, in the Western Pacific very significantly and will continue to do so. In other words, it has deprived the United States of the sea control which has been the foundation of its position in the Western Pacific and has achieved a significant level of sea denial itself. Uh, I think the same is true of Australia in spades. I think Australia's chance of being able to deploy and sustain forces by sea in the face of opposition from major power adversary over the next few decades are low and are going to get lower. And so our traditional model uh, of deploying forces by sea is, uh, land forces by sea is, I think, very suspect. Um, the second argument, the second reason why I think that traditional model doesn't work is that, um, uh, I, well, it would, it would presuppose that Australia would raise um, and sustain uh, land forces on a scale uh, which it's never done before, or at least not since the First World War. Um, uh, the West actually has never been a big land player in Asia. Uh, Western, Western power, strategic power in the Western Pacific has always been primarily maritime. Uh, I think the chances of there being significant um, Western land campaigns in Asia in the future are very low, and so the chances of Australia being able to make much of a contribution to coalition operations in Asia with, with large continental forces are very low. Uh, if, if Australia is going to achieve its strategic objectives in Asia, it's going to achieve them at sea. Both of those things make me think that the approach Australia needs to take is not to think about doing actually what we're doing right now, that is building for the first time in quite a few decades uh, an attempt at a, a um, relatively high-end amphibious operation, operational capability in the form of two very big amphibious ships and a reshaping of the army around them to make it into a kind of Marine Corps. Rather than do that, I think we need to think about what sea denial can do for us. And in broad terms, I think we, if we can, uh, the kind of sea denial forces which you can use for the defence of the continent can also give us options to prevent others projecting power by sea in the, in the water, broader Western Pacific. And that's probably all we can achieve, contributing to coalition operations, um, uh, for, for, sea, for sea denial operations in the Western Pacific. And that's a feature, of course, of the geography of Asia with its very strong maritime focus. So if that's right, if, Australia's, if, if Australia can, could be a middle power in the Asian century, I think it'll do it. It can only do it, or can do it by far and away most cost-effectively, using a sea denial posture. Now, that kind of sea denial posture would be very different from what we prepare for at the moment and require a very different kind of defence force. Um, uh, 
how seed denial works is a very big and complex subject in itself, but just to give you a, a sense of the scale, at the moment Australia has a fleet of six submarines. It's planned to expand that from six to 12 over the next 30 years in order to provide the kind of seed denial capabilities which are implied by the operational construct I've just talked about. We'll be talking about 24 or 36 or more. This is a much, much bigger demand on submarines than we've had hitherto. Uh, we'll be looking at a frontline combat aircraft capability not of 100, which is roughly speaking what we're looking at at the moment, uh, but of 200 or more. We'll be looking at a much bigger investment in surveillance and so on. This is a very different ADF from the one Australia has today and a very different ADF from the one it's had, well, really ever before in our, in our history. But that's because I would argue our strategic circumstances are very different from anything before we've seen, we've seen before in our history. It would also cost a lot more. Um, uh, I don't know how much it would cost. Precisely, it would depend how much we're prepared to do without. But uh, I'd be, I'm sure it couldn't be done for less than 3% of GDP. At the moment, we're spending about 1.8. Uh, I suspect it couldn't be done for less than 4% of GDP. So we'd be talking about a much bigger share of, of Australia's um, uh, national wealth being spent on defence than is at the moment. Not much bigger than we've seen in the past, nor for that matter much bigger than the UK has spent in recent memory. In the 1950s and 1960s, Australia's defence spending averaged about 3.7% of GDP. That was the last time we saw ourselves functioning in an Asia in which major power relations was contested. Um, and it didn't stop our economy growing pretty briskly. So 3 or 4% is doable, but it's very different. Um, now, these are the questions that the 2009 White Paper, which as you mentioned, of which you mentioned I'm not a great fan, walked up to and then ducked away from. Now the questions of the 2013 White Paper, which uh, is the government has commissioned, um, will need to address. I, I've got to say I think, they, I think it probably won't, and I think we probably will miss the opportunity to do much about it, so I think the likelihood is Australia will end up not as a middle power but as a small power in the Asian century. Um, uh, I hope New Zealand will be kind to us when we join them. <laughs> Thank you very much.